Made Visible is a podcast that gives a voice to people with invisible illnesses. There's no blueprint about how to live with an invisible illness or how to be there for someone who has one. We're here to help people feel less alone as they strive to create a normal life and to create an awareness of how we can be supportive of people who seem fine but aren't. Hey guys, welcome to another episode of Made Visible. I'm your host, Harper Spiro. As always, appreciate you tuning into the podcast. We've created a questionnaire to better understand you, the listener, and what it is that keeps you coming back to listen. We want to know what's working for you and what you want more and possibly less of. Please take a few minutes to head over to bit.ly forward slash made visible podcast to fill this out. Again, that's bit.ly forward slash made visible podcast. Your support is greatly appreciated. Let's jump into today's guest. I'm in an incredible Facebook community called Dreamers and Doers that brings together women from all different countries, backgrounds, and careers. It's been an incredible resource for me, both professionally and personally. One of the amazing women that I've met in the group is Lauren Chiarello. Earlier this summer, we were set to speak on a panel together about managing her career with a life-altering health diagnosis. The day of the event, Lauren texted me, to inform me that she couldn't be there as she had had an ectopic pregnancy. I was totally crushed for her, and yet I know how much of a fighter she is, especially as a two-time cancer survivor, so I was certain she'd get through it. I'm thrilled to have Lauren on the show today to talk about her journey. Welcome, Lauren. Hi, welcome to me. Yay! So happy to be here. So happy to have you here. Been waiting for this one. So tell us a little bit about you, where you live, what you do, all that good stuff. Yes. So uh, I live here in New York City and then also in Ridgefield, Connecticut. So sharing the time at the moment. And I am the founder of Chi Chi Life, which blends a few of my passions, teaching fitness, fundraising and event planning, corporate wellness, and cancer advocacy. And I started my business about three and a half years ago. And it's just been a ride. Each year has looked really different in terms of you know, how much event planning am I doing? How much fitness am I doing? And it's been um, kind of a really cool um, evolution through the last handful of years. So, and, and yeah, so thrilled for groups like Dreamers Doers to bring amazing humans into my life like you. I think one of the things that we first connected on was that we both had a love of doing a lot of different things. Yes. I am not someone that is defined by just a business coach or just a podcast host or just a consultant. I love doing a lot of different things. And I remember the first time we met being like, wait, you do this and that? <laughs> totally. Well, I mean, I, I when someone asked me, oh, so like, what do you do? I'm like, well, I do a lot of things. Like that is literally my initial response because um, each day looks quite different and, um, you know, and it, it can kind of pivot, you know, depending on the season, depending on sort of where I'm feeling a pull towards. So it's been really a beautiful gift to be able to kind of shift and try to be really fluid with uh, my business. So yeah, and it's nice to meet other people who are in that same boat um, and can understand and relate. Yeah, and I think a lot of people think like, how do you give 100% to each of these different things? But for me, I don't think I could give 100% if I was just doing one thing. Yeah. Just yeah. wouldn't work that way. So let's dig into the reason that we're here, which is all about invisible illness. You were diagnosed with Hodgkin's lymphoma when you were 23. Tell us a little bit about what that experience was like. Yeah. Oh, gosh. So I landed in a dermatologist's office with severely itchy skin and 
I really didn't think too much of it initially, you know, but it was so bad. Like my legs ditch, my belly itch, my arms. And what was so strange is that there was no rash or dry skin or anything. So I just thought it was super strange, but it was so distracting to me in my day to day that I was like, all right, I got to get this checked out. And sort of what felt like the natural first step was a dermatologist office. And during that appointment, actually, I did mention how I had a lump above my collarbone that I felt like it was getting bigger. I didn't know if it really was. I thought maybe I was crazy, but I, you know, I figured let me just ask and see kind of what she thinks. And she later on told me that she like was quite sure that I had Hodgkin's lymphoma because she like remembered this day in medical school where she was like, if a young person comes in with itchy skin, which is one of the symptoms, um, you know, don't discount them and don't let them just kind of like walk away and with me showing her the enlarged lymph node, like the light bulb went off for her. And I was quite new to the city. So um, I was just about a year and a half out of college. And I, you know, I didn't really know, I didn't really have any doctors like that were set. It's not like, oh yeah, like go see, you know, ex doctor, whatever. Like I just moved into the city six months prior. And so it started a journey of going to a series of different doctors. And, and actually my dermatologist followed up with me the following week to say like, did you make your appointment with the general practitioner to get your blood work and a chest x-ray? Because she really kind of felt like something was wrong. And, um, you know, I, for me, I was, I was totally devastated. I was so young and, um, I just didn't see it coming. I led a really healthy lifestyle. I grew up an athlete, uh, playing sports. I mean, not a great athlete, but an athlete <laughs> nonetheless. And I was, um, you know, someone who led a decently healthy lifestyle. I've been a vegetarian since I was 14. Me and too. Woo, yay. <laughs> a high five just happened, guys. Uh, <laughs> and I just was very taken aback. And I think from there, I never wanted to kind of back down to it. And I still worked full time during my six months of chemotherapy. Um, I would go to get my chemotherapy in the morning every other week on Thursdays and I would continue, would go to work. And then um, every other Monday I took off because I was like quite kind of knocked down from the chemo. And um, what were you doing work-wise then? Yeah. So I was working at a small social services agency on the Upper East Side uh, planning special events. So in development department, planning galas, dinners, uh, cocktail parties, things like that to benefit the mission. So, I mean, luckily they were, you know, flexible, uh, you know, with everything going on. So I was very grateful for that. And, you know, and then it, I was in remission for six months. Yay. Um, and during that time I was inspired to run my first half marathon. And that's really where my love of running sort of first that seed was planted. I had some friends run in honor of me and raise money for lymphoma research. And I thought, well, what a great way to kind of bounce back and get into, you know, my body again and meet an, a beautiful community and give back and help support others. And so I ran my first uh, half marathon in uh, that following January. And the weekend of my race, I felt the lump up on my collarbone come back. And I was, again, totally sidelined, uh, did not think the cancer would return. I, uh, It's also not quite common. And I, again, just was really devastated. And with this, uh, I actually at the time was working at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. So I started a new role there while I was in remission. And I had to leave work, unfortunately, for six months. And I went through more treatment. So it was quite rigorous the second time around. It was more chemotherapy. I had my own stem cells collected. And then uh, from there, it was chemo, radiation, and a high, sorry, 
radiation, high dose chemotherapy, and then a stem cell transplant. And I was in the hospital in isolation for six weeks. So it was really tough. And I celebrated my 25th birthday in the hospital. And um, when you have your stem cell transplant, it's actually considered your second birthday. So basically my two birthdays are one week apart and April is a really big month that I celebrate each year. And um, I'm proud to say that I am over nine years in remission and yay, major <laughs> clap. And it's, uh, it's just been a ride. And, you know, I, I think I can talk about it, um, you know, pretty matter of factly with so much time has gone by and I've been uh, quite involved with supporting others in the community. And I think that's really allowed me to heal and just kind of give back as well. So it's been, um, it's definitely been a ride and, um, you know, fitness changed my life and, you know, really kind of allowed me to go on to this path that I've been on. So when you were first diagnosed, what was that support system like that you had and how did you decide when to tell people and how to tell people and what were those reactions like? Sure. Yeah. Well, and so this was a bit ago, right? So I was diagnosed in December of 2007. So I will have to say like the connectivity of our lives were, was very different, um, right? Like Facebook had been around for like one singular year <laughs> and the other channels didn't exist yet. So, um, you know, with that being said, I, definitely told my friends. I mean, I think slowly, um, and my family knew as well. And of course, um, but maybe not, of course, you know, and they were my number one cheerleaders and my mom slept with me every single night in the hospital and my dad and my mom and my sister, they were just completely there for me and really helped me, especially the second time around very much just get back on my feet. I had to live at home for several months because I wasn't well enough to to live on my own and I was still recovering. And because even after the transplant, I was still out of work uh, recovering and it, it, it takes some time. Like sometimes the victory of the day was getting out of bed and taking a shower or I struggled with uh, mouth sores, throat sores and uh, I actually like went home on liquid morphine. I could barely eat anything. I could barely swallow my own saliva and it was so painful. So it really took, you know, having that support system for me to move through this. And I can't imagine my life without them. And I feel like I'm just like forever <laughs> grateful. And my mom and I call each other, uh, side, she's my sidekick. And then, uh, she has some health issues as well, and I'm her sidekick, so we're each other's sidekicks. And yeah, in terms of friends, I mean, they were, some friends certainly, I think, were more supportive than others. And being so young, I think, you know, 23, 24, 25, you don't necessarily know how to react to something like that. It's uh, it's scary. And I remember, like, someone I was quite close with, I had told her over the phone, and I feel like she almost like hung up on me. <laughs> she just really was like, so she was so sidelined and just didn't really know what to say. And I think what I learned through that experience was just trying to have compassion for people and understanding that not everyone will know what to say. And I think when we can just try to hold space for people and listen to them, it's uh, that's helpful in and of itself, right? I mean, we may not always have like the perfect words to say and um, but I, I really learned that of, you know, through this experience of and also too like the compassion that people can have for 
a tough life experience. And I think I show, I was shown how important community is. And that's something that I really try to embody in every day and in my business as well. So um, yeah, I feel like a lot of, you know, great things came out of it, uh, even though it was really tough and not easy for a long time. Um, but my life, I feel like is so much better because of it, which is, I guess, kind of wild to say. <laughs> I feel like a broken record on the podcast in saying the same thing over and over. Of There is no manual for how to deal with this as a patient, as a caregiver, as a friend. And there's an example that I always think about of when I had surgery six years ago, I remember sitting on my couch with a friend of mine telling her I was going to have surgery and she lost it, hysterically crying, Mm. losing it. I felt like she was more affected by it than I was. I mean, it was intense for me, but she completely lost it. And then she went off the map for nine months and didn't reach out, didn't check in on me. And I forget how we reconnected. Maybe I reached out to her. Maybe she reached out to me. But she basically said she didn't know how to handle it. Mm-hmm. And she thought about me every week and every day, and but just didn't know what to say. And how are you? Ah, she mm-hmm. just fumbled with words. So she said nothing. And I think it's one of those things where, again, there's not a manual. There's not a right way. And you've got to appreciate the people who are able to give you whatever level of support you can get and sometimes show and tell what it is that you need. Mm-hmm. I mean, one of the many reasons I started this podcast is to try to help educate people on what things are effective and what aren't. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And I think the community is a huge part of this. And obviously the advocacy work that you're doing. I mean, you started working at Sloan Kettering. That's mm-hmm. not a uh, random thing that you did. Mm-hmm. And you do a lot of advocacy work. What made you get into that? I wanted to give back, pure and simple. I remember the people who were there for me when I was sick, and that was so key. I wanted that was like my, one of my first questions to my oncologist was, "Who can I speak to that went through this?" I just wanted to know what it would be like, especially but more the second time around, just because I knew it was going to be very intense. And luckily, they like lined me up with someone who had been through pretty much the same protocol as me. And, you know, of course, everyone's body reacts differently and people have long-term after effects. I am definitely like the shiny unicorn that really does not have any knock on wood yet. Um, But I have friends that were on the same exact protocol as me. And by protocol, I mean, just basically like series of therapies that we received and they you know one went into early menopause and also has had issues with her heart and has had to have heart surgery the other one has severe issues with her lungs she had her lungs collapse she had to have a lung transplant and these are all things that that I'm very aware could have happened to me but did not and you know ha- have not uh, you know knock on one again I'm I'm in some, you know, I'm in the survivorship program at Sloan Kettering and I'm in a breast surveillance program because now I'm at a high risk for breast cancer. So it's something that I still try to very much stay on top of. But um, so I remember how challenging it was to go through what I went through. And my hope is to just share any insights that I may have that will be helpful for them, but to also just mainly listen and to help them answer anything that they are curious about and, you know, would like to know. So for me, I offer to meet with them. I speak with them on the phone. And these are patients uh, that are 
usually preparing for stem cell transplant. Sometimes they're just like around my age and maybe have a different kind of cancer. Um, so there's a few ways that I'll get paired up with uh, patients. And then also I speak about my story. So, I mean, I can, uh, you know, I think express how much I believe in sharing what we've been through to allow for us to just come together and feel less alone. And I think that this is like a beautiful testament to your podcast too, especially in the sense of um, invisible illnesses when you just have no idea what people have been through. And I know like you've touched on that in, in some past episodes and it's just that I think when you can come from a place of compassion and really trying to just keep an open mind and heart for people, it's the world is like a better place. And, um, but also one one other thing that I do, or actually a couple other things that I do to get involved with the cancer community is um, I speak at uh, nurse orientations at the hospital. So it's usually about anywhere from like 50 to 100 new staff. So I share my experience from the patient perspective and I offer them insights of perhaps uh you know, things that could have gone better during my experience and then also things that were super effective. Wow. I love that you do that. And it is uh, incredible. I mean, they're so appreciative because right during these like day after day after trainings and it's like probably not that exciting, (laughs) but then they get to hear from someone of like the reason why they're doing what they're doing. How did you come to do that? Through Memorial Sloan Kettering. So I'm a member and participant, I suppose, of the patient of patient volunteer program there. So um, different opportunities come up. Um, Another opportunity I had was they were designing the new uh, stem cell transplant floor. So I actually was involved with the planning meetings with the architect and engineers and the nursing staff to help develop nuances of the new floor that was being built. So I experienced got to be a part of that, which was incredible. So I, again, they would kind of look to me and be like, well, what did you think about, you know, X, Y, Z, or, you know, the shower or the door and where this was placed in the room? Like they really wanted to hear from the patient perspective. This is like shocking to me. Seriously. I think it's so brilliant. I've actually approached the idea a little bit to the National Institute of Health where I'm treated in Bethesda, Maryland of like, maybe I could educate people on bedside manners, doctors and nurses. But the fact that you're able to give this input and for them to genuinely care as a patient, what that experience was like is so valuable. Wow. I love that. It's been incredible. And um, another way I'm involved with the hospital, um, well, a couple, I ran my two marathons fundraising for Fred's team. Um, and what's cool is that you can fundraise for any area of cancer research that you want. So I chose one year, I chose lymphoma research. The other one, I chose the survivorship program. And I was supposed to run New York the year that Sandy happened. Did not happen in New York, but I ran in Pennsylvania. And then the following year, I ran the New York City Marathon with Fred's team. And um, it was super cool. And there is nothing like running past the hospital that saved my life. I mean, that was really the reason why I wanted to run New York. You run right up First Avenue. And it just was everything. I mean, there's no words to describe it. And and then I'm involved with Cycle for Survival, which is an indoor team cycling event to raise money for rare cancer research at Memorial Sloan Kettering. Um, but they help to develop clinical trials that are used all over the country, all over the world. So essentially, I'm the captain of a five-bike team. Um, usually I have like 20 to 25 people on the team, and we fundraise our tails off. And then we basically, it's like one big spin bike party, and we just ride and lots of good vibes. And so, yeah, I'm involved in that sense of the fundraising and the speaking and then the patient-to-patient support. So it's been really cool to 
kind of have those different buckets and be able to continue to um, keep my cancer experience close to my heart. You know, I mean, the good, the good, the bad and the ugly. (laughs) Absolutely. It's incredible what you do. So obviously you have your hands full with all of this advocacy work, running your business. How do you maintain your health? Obviously you mentioned that you had a healthy lifestyle before you were even diagnosed. What does that mean to you now? Ooh, this is such a juicy one because <laughs> I feel like I dance with this all the time. Um, you know, because I work on a lot of things and a lot of projects and a lot of cool experiences, I I have a hard time um, carving out time that's just dedicated to myself. Um, about a year ago, I started um, getting massages every other week. That was really more like therapeutic to help. I use my body so much with my work, so. I needed to make sure that it's like staying in good condition to be able to continue doing what I do. So that was something that I integrated that's been so helpful for me. And then um, I make my own workouts a priority. Um, I will say that that kind of ebbs and flows, but um, because perhaps if I'm teaching like four plus hours in a day and like commuting, you know, uptown, downtown and a little bit around the city that uh, sometimes I just don't have the physical and mental energy to exercise. Uh, so it's it's been tricky, but I think that the more awareness I bring to kind of my energy level throughout the day, it allows me to say, okay, well, like, what should I maybe cut back on? What can I amp up more? Or how can I kind of shift my schedule around a little bit to allow to, myself to conserve some energy? So I think it's like, all about the conservation of energy. And it's, it's tricky though. And I think it's, especially in the fitness uh, industry. And then also to just think entrepreneurs in general, um, or solopreneurs who are people who work for themselves. It's, uh, you, you know, you have to set those boundaries. And I think we've talked about that a bit that it's, it can be hard. And, um, you know, I like to say yes to everything. And I'm really learning to say no. And I, uh, my friend, Jill, Ozevac, also fellow dreamers doer, she recommended the book Essentialism to me by uh, Greg McCowan, who basically the idea of the pursuit of less but better. So, you know, how can you kind of have um, maybe less in your life, but like make it really, really amazing. So um, encourage you to check out that book. (laughs) Yeah, Jill definitely practices that. She's really good about that stuff. Yeah, I think it's a challenge as a business owner, but it's interesting based on the work that you do, where you're helping other people with their health and their well-being to then make sure that you're prioritizing it for yourself is so important. So let's shift gears a little bit about, you know, where you're at now. A few months ago, you had this ectopic pregnancy. As I said to you, when you told me, what is that? What's going on here? Tell us a little bit about your experience and why you decided to share your story so openly. You posted on Facebook about it. A week after. So tell us about that. So sure. Let me just back up a little bit because uh, before I went through my cancer treatments the second time around, I actually froze my eggs. So uh, the doctors had basically told me there's a really good chance that you could become infertile, go into early menopause. So you do have time. Let's freeze your eggs. And at the time, actually just freezing eggs, this was in uh, 2009, early 2009, it actually didn't have that great of a chance to then become a baby. Um, they were really kind of refining the process when they thaw the eggs to then like be able to fertilize it and all that good stuff. But now they've made like leaps and bounds. And it's so amazing that like basically nine years later, 
I actually have like a very, very good chance now if I ever did need those eggs. So I think it's kind of worth uh, mentioning that, like the progress that's been made within that space. And it's, um, it was scary, you know, I mean, I was like 24 years old, like sitting you know, in, you really have to go into the doctors and get blood work every day and they're tracking everything. And, um, you know, with that, I had a really successful egg freezing. I have 23 eggs frozen, which is like literally insane apparently, because I've spoken to women in their thirties and they're, it's like a victory if they get like six or something. So the fact that I have that many eggs frozen is sort of wild. Uh, but though I didn't really know that at the time. Right. So Anyway, that being said, those are still on the Upper East Side frozen, and we shall see if I need them. Uh, So earlier this year, um, my husband and I started trying for family, and so we were successful, yay, Um, and we were pregnant, and it was kind of cool. Like I found out actually like the day after my birthday, and I had drank. I actually had like ever teach um, at a studio here in the city, and I had everyone come and take my class, and then we were like hanging out and having cupcakes and champagne. And then like the next morning I was like, wait, um, I think I was supposed to be getting my period. You know, I said to my husband and he was like, okay, well, uh, let's like, let's take a test. Okay. And then, so that night I took a test and it turns out that I was pregnant. And so it was exciting. And I was this so- is already like a celebratory week in your yeah. life. <laughs> like that time is always something for you. Yes. Wow. Okay. I know. And we were closing on our first home a week <laughs> later. April. Yes. April. Wow. It was like a power month. And so a lot was going on and we were so excited. And again, like just not really knowing if it would happen. And we were just like, okay, let's see. And uh, so from there, actually, like, you know, I didn't really know that, know too much about kind of what goes on then from there. I'm like, okay, well, I'm pregnant now what? And, you know, it turns out that you don't really go to a doctor um, or a midwife until you're about seven, eight weeks pregnant. They just like, don't see you. So there's these like very much in limbo weeks where you're like, cool, like I'm pregnant. I don't, not really saying anything to anyone. And like, I still haven't even gone to the doctor. Like I only know I'm pregnant because I, you know, took the test from the pharmacy and there it is. So I thought that that was really unique. Like this, these stretch of weeks where just, I was not able to garner any information and that, that was just what it was. And so for me, that was, uh, I didn't know that that's how it would be. And so that being said, I made an appointment with an OBGYN week seven and then week eight, I was uh, set to see a midwife because I'm just, I'm not quite sure like which path I wanted to take. And I, uh, so I went to my first appointment with the OBGYN and my husband was actually away for work, unfortunately. But again, it's like, it had to be that week, you know, it's like, that's when they see you. So I'm like, all right, he's on FaceTime. My mom came with me instead. Um, and she was like thrilled. And <laughs> um, so it's kind of wild but so they basically did the sonogram internal sonogram and she didn't see anything uh so that was not great um so but she goes okay well it could be a few things she's like maybe your dates are a little off and you know maybe it's just like early on and I'm like well I'm tracking an app I'm like my dates are right I'm like this event planner has got her dates right and then the second thought was that um 
perhaps there's just like uh, something called a chemical pregnancy where the levels, uh, you know, of your hormones go up and then you are pregnant, but not really. It almost like it's, it doesn't land, doesn't stick essentially is kind of how she described it. And then the third was an ectopic pregnancy. And um, I had only known what that was through a, a yoga teacher actually, who I've taken some workshops with. She's based in LA and she was very open about her ectopic pregnancy. And what it is, is when the embryo gets stuck in the fallopian tube and or basically implants outside of the uterus. So it could be mainly the fallopian tube, but it could also like float around out there, down there. I don't really know all the nuances, but so essentially uh, that was when I first thought or heard that that's what it could be. And then from there, I basically had to wait like an entire week to get a full ultrasound sonogram, like internal, like it was like almost 45 minutes long. um, And it was Mother's Day that weekend. Oh, which is kind of wild. <laughs> so I'm like, there I am. I'm like, it's, and I'm, my, my test is the next day. So it's like Sunday, Mother's Day. We like all got together, my family for Mother's Day brunch and my sister, my brother-in-law, and I have two nephews and a niece and my parents. And anyway, and we're just, and everyone knows like, of like, we don't know what's happening, like da, da, da. And this was this, again, this challenge of being in limbo for like an entire week of like not knowing what's happening in my oh. body. And it was really difficult, um, but at least I was happy. I just kept like trying to stay in the moment and then know like, okay, like each day will move by and like, I'll be in that, you know, in that room in the hospital on Monday to get, get the test. So I actually had a bunch of meetings that morning. I was actually set to help my friend produce an event on that Wednesday. Um, I went from seating meetings to literally uh, the, the hospital while Cornell to get my sonogram and um, I never left the hospital. So, and, um, yeah, an OBGYN came in and uh, said basically, actually, it was my OBGYN who I'd seen the week before. She was finishing up her, her day, actually. So she wasn't the one who performed the surgery, but she basically said, it is an ectopic pregnancy. It's in your right fallopian tube and you need surgery immediately. So from there, um, basically to the emergency room and they admitted me and I had the surgery a few hours later. I'm just like speechless. It's so crazy. And you're so well spoken and so like phenomenal in how you handle all of this. So what was that experience like for you? Because like even your enthusiasm talking about it now, you were so optimistic. You were so hopeful. Mm. And then this happened. Yeah, I know. I know. So, I mean, yeah, I think my husband and I were not, I think, I know we were like, quite sad and grieving and not really knowing what to feel actually. So like feeling kind of like confused about what happened. Um, I think a big piece of any life challenge is acceptance and understanding that there was nothing to do. You couldn't control or change anything. So for us, I, well, Russ, my husband called our little one, um, our wandering soul so our little wandering soul. So that was sort of our our name for the experience. And we planted a lilac tree in our little wandering soul's uh, honor and our new home. Um, so we did that um, a couple weeks after. And um, it's uh, it was really uh, hard and it still is, I think. Uh, it's kind of wild. Like I have a, actually a close friend and student of mine who um, we would have been like two weeks apart. 
um, had I still been pregnant now. And so it's kind of been wild. So like I see her like a couple times a week and she's like this most amazing, wonderful soul. And I like see her like belly growing and she's like feeling so good, which is really cool too. Cause you know, you hear how, you know, everyone's body and, you know, reacts quite differently to pregnancy. Some people have really hard pregnancies, but she's just like, I just feel really good. And it makes me like so happy to like see her progressing in her pregnancy. But it's kind of wild to think like, oh, wow, like we would have had babies like right around the same time had I still been pregnant. So like some of those thoughts kind of come up. But um, is it hard to watch people that are pregnant, especially someone like her, when you do see her often and you were so close in date? Sure. Yeah. It's, you know, I think it's almost like on a case to case basis. I think sometimes yes, but like for my friend that I'm talking about, um, it's not like I'm so, so much joy, um, is in my heart to like watching her go through her pregnancy and then just seeing like how much she's been, she just is that like glow, like she has that glow about her and she's just so like, thrilled about it and it's been actually in a way like almost like healing to just like see how she's just doing so well and um you know and I think it allows me to be hopeful that you know our time will come and I think for me it's again just this idea of acceptance and like taking things how they come and I do believe we'll have a family and like it it can look differently um in so many ways so I you know we're excited for that and so where do you stand on that front fertility wise? Sure. So, so crazy enough, I, with, in this, being in the survivorship program at Sloan Kettering, uh, I, they take the blood work and since I'm about 10 years post transplant, they actually took uh, my titers to see what um, uh, vaccines that I was still immune to and like my level of immunity, because essentially when I got this stem cell transplant, like they really kind of bring you to the brink of death and then like infuse you with new stem cells. So you have a brand new immune system. So I had to get all my vaccines again, like I was a little baby and um, I needed boosters. So actually I sort of ignored it (laughs) earlier in the year. And so with the vaccines, since they're live, you can't try uh, to have a baby. So I was just kind of like, eh, like maybe I'll deal with that. I'm like, it's not like super time sensitive. It's like, we'll just kind of hang tight. So once I, once we weren't pregnant anymore, I decided, you know what, let me make that a priority and I'll go. And we knew we wanted to take a bit of a break anyway. Um, the doctor actually did say like once my period returned, which it did like pretty quickly that we could try again. But, um, I thought that was kind of wild. I'm like, Oh, I think I need to let my body heal from the surgery. Yeah. Uh, so and I'm sure yeah. you were still in a fragile state to a certain extent of yeah. dealing with this. I yeah. mean, it's not like overnight you're over this. No. No, still a loss. Not at all. Not at all. And so, yeah, I mean, we, so basically I had vaccines June, July, August, and September. And um, so now we're, we're in that phase again that we're going to start trying. So we'll see where that will be. You know, I think it's kind of, I think from what I've learned is just that like nothing's like ever a straight line. I mean, which I think I've like already learned that lesson like 5 million times over, but it's always like smacks you in the face again when you, when you experience it. But I think, uh, but in a good way, (laughs) but it's just, uh, you know, things can look different than what you expect and what you envision. And when you can come into it with a place of just like, again, curiosity, acceptance, and like believing that what will be is what will be. And, uh, for me, that's kind of just like how I, how I lead my life and, and it's worked out pretty well. I love that. Well, and you also are so, you're such an open book. 
I mean, every time I log on to Facebook, there's another article featuring <laughs> Lauren and it's not her being braggy or annoying at all. It's like, I can't get enough of your optimism. Mm. What makes you continue to put your story out there more and more? Helping others. I mean, and also sharing what I went through recently with the ectopic pregnancy, it allows um, the door to be open for people to support me as well. I mean, I easily could have like that literally the day of our panel and our event, I could have maybe texted you like, Hey guys, just not feeling well. I think your average person would do that. Yeah, I do. Yeah. But I knew that you and Tiffany and, um, you know, Emily who ran the event, I knew that you're the type of people though, that would get it and would be like, honey, I can't even imagine what you're going through. And like, I'm here for you. And that's, I knew that that would be your reaction. And, and, and a day later, what arrived at my door were these magical, beautiful, bright flowers that were just lit up my apartment. And I was like, exactly. I was like, this is the type of people that I surround myself with because they get it. They understand that life's hard. And, you know, I often find that like more and more, I'm just like assessing the people that I spend my time with because life is too damn short to listen to people complain. (laughs) Like, and I'm not saying that we all don't have hard things to experience. Like I get that. And not every day is sunshine and unicorns, like fully understand that, but it's about our approach and how we talk through things and how we can try to like support each other, not just like complain, 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 you know? And it's just, I'm not, for me, I, I cannot surround myself with people like that anymore. I just like, I really won't. And because of that, I mean, I know my relationships from childhood have shifted and you know, it's just, it's, you know, it's kind of just lightened my life, you know, and and I think it's been a gift to be able to like allow myself to have amazing people who really are lovers of life um, come into my life and be able to share in, in their joys as well. So I think that that's like a big piece of why I'm so open is because like, you never know who you're going to be able to impact, but then also you never know who might come into your life who literally like will change your life. I just believe that this world is, it's so large, but it's so small too in the same way. And I think, again, this idea of the more and more we can be open and vulnerable and share, you know, we're just less alone and community is everything. Absolutely. So this was amazing. And I'm so appreciative of you for taking the time and obviously being an open book about all of this stuff. I hope that you have a successful pregnancy and all of that stuff and have some amazing baby that you bring into the world in whatever way that that happens. And how can people find you online and learn more about you and teaching and events and the advocacy work that you're doing? Absolutely. Yeah. So you can pop over to my website, which is chichilifenyc.com. And that's C-H-I-C-H-I lifenyc.com. And then same on Instagram. It's at chichilifenyc. And would love to have you in class anytime. I teach Pilates bar and TRX here in the city. I do private classes and lots of corporate wellness programming, panels, workshops. And yeah, would just love to have the opportunity to work with you and meet you all. And I know if you're listening to Harper's podcast, you're an amazing person. So yay, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks for tuning into Made Visible. We hope you learned about something new today. If you enjoyed this episode, please take a few minutes to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast on iTunes. We can't do this without your support. Visit madevisiblepodcast.com, follow Made Visible Podcast on Instagram, 
Special thanks to the team who made this possible. Elise Bonebright, the audio editor. Gemma Leghorn, the assistant producer. Dylan Chenfeld for the intro music. And Krista Gray for the logo and design concepts.